And this evening's reading is found on page 1094 in your pew Bibles. It's Acts 2, verses 42 to 47. Page 1094, Acts 2, verses 42 to 47. The Fellowship of the Believers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, everybody. Thank you. Today is Mothering Sunday, so can I begin by just acknowledging all the mothers out there. Happy Mothering Sunday. I hope you had a good day. And just to say also, though, today we're not just celebrating mothers. Historically, I think, Mothering Sunday was when working people, domestic staff especially, were given a day off to return to their mother church, their home church, often together with their families. And I'm sure because they wanted to give me a wonderful surprise, some of my family have, without notice, shown up in the back of the church this evening. Thanks, guys. I can't tell you how nerve-wracking it is to speak um, in the presence of people who knew you when you were young and wayward and who knew me at a time when I wouldn't be standing up saying these words. Um, So I don't actually know whether to laugh or to cry. But let's pray. Lord, I need your help. Um, Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for one another. Thank you for the words of the apostles that we have inherited um, through the New Testament. Thank you that we can continue to stand on that today. And Lord, will you still our hearts, still my heart, just in this moment, so we can receive from you. Amen. So, as I said, today is not just about celebrating our flesh and blood family. It is also about celebrating the love and care and nurture that there is within the church, within the body of Christ. And in that, we all have a part to play because we are the church. So this Mothering Sunday is very timely because this evening we are thinking about Christian community. And as I started thinking about the title given for this evening, which is Growing Community, I started thinking, um, my mind went back to last summer. My aunt Mary died in mid-July. And in the weeks after that, I spent many hours looking through her old photographs. And among them were a series of black and white photos from the early 1950s 
of groups of people, no more than 20, some of them Chinese, some of them not Chinese, gathered in various London living rooms. And in some of these pictures, they're sitting, listening to someone speaking. In others, they have their Bibles open, they're doing a study. In a lot of the pictures, a lot of the pictures, they're simply eating and laughing together. And these were the very first photos taken of a group that um, became the Chinese church in London, a church that traces its roots to Christmas Eve 1950, when a few friends gathered to pray that God would establish a church of Chinese Christians right here in London. Today, that church still exists, and it has an attendance of about 1,300 people in five separate locations across the capital. But its activity, its life, is essentially the same today as it was in those early pictures. They're still gathering together, they're still learning together, they're still praying together, they're still eating and laughing together. Those photos were the first records of one particular church. And our reading today, this short passage at the end of of Acts chapter 2, in this passage we see the first record that exists of the church, the church, the church universal. So we can take these six verses as snapshots, as photos of what the early days of the church were like. So we look and see that in verse 42, there's a picture of them perhaps gathered around Peter or John, listening to what they had to say about Jesus, listening to their memories of what Jesus did and taught. There's a picture of them taking the Lord's Supper together, There's another picture of them praying. In verse 45, there's a picture, or maybe this one needs a video, of someone going to market to sell something, sheep maybe, and bringing the proceeds back to the apostles to distribute according to need. In verse 46, there's a picture of them going up to the temple together to worship, along with a picture of them eating and laughing together in someone's home. Today, this church described here, has about two and a half billion members meeting all over the world. It's still growing, and the activity, the life of this church, remains essentially the same as it was then. This evening, we're also concluding our sermon series on foundational truths by considering Christian community. And this passage is a good one for wrapping things up, wrapping up the series, because all the themes covered in the three earlier sermons feature here. You'll remember that Charles began the series by speaking about the fear of the Lord and how in in our generation that's cultivated a really acute self-sufficiency and and acute self-regard. We've really lost the sense of the fear of the Lord. We've lost that sense of awe and reverence for God. That wasn't so for this early community of believers. We read in verse 43, everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. I don't know, perhaps we don't see as many miracles and wonders, or at least we're slow to perceive what God is doing because we lack that similar sense of awe. Do we, by not having a proper sense of God's bigness, have shriveled expectations of how he can act? That wasn't so for the early church. The fear of the Lord was foundational for them. 
Guy then spoke about how in our post-truth generation, we, the church, should be distinctive in our identity as inheritors of the truth, not because we're clever and we've worked out what the truth is, but because Jesus came and revealed himself to us as the truth. So we can stand confidently on our belief that we have the truth that sets people free. We see this in verse 42, that believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. These new believers hadn't signed up to some mystical religion, and there were plenty of those around, based on experience or feeling. They had chosen to believe in a set of historical facts about Jesus, and that decision transformed their lives, and they were devoted to further learning about what Jesus did and said, and what that meant for them and for the world. So the proclamation of the truth, study of the truth, commitment to the the truth, were foundational for the early church. And then last week, Charles spoke about faith, hope, and love as the hallmarks of a spiritually healthy church. And we see these three qualities knit together, don't we, in the believer's devotion to their life together. Whether they were learning, worshipping, pastorally caring for one another or sharing material wealth. These believers did all of that wholeheartedly. And they did it all the time. They did it every day. They were devoted to God and to one another. So faith, hope, and love were foundational for the early church. And as these truths were lived out within the community of believers within the church, what was the net result? What was the net result of them living out these truths? Well, the church grew. There was growth in depth as the believers made a permanent commitment to living life together. Verse 44 is actually an amazing verse. All the believers were together and had everything in common. That is permanent commitment. And there was a growth in numbers as those on the outside looked and they liked what they saw and they wanted in on it. Verse 47, the believers enjoyed the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So there is plenty we can learn from this model of how to live as a body of believers. All the basic elements of a thriving, growing Christian community are laid out here studying under the apostles' teaching, which we can continue to do because we have their teaching written out in the New Testament. There's the regular fellowship, there's taking the Lord's Supper together, praying together, sharing material assets. And please note from the story in chapter 5 of Acts that the sharing was entirely voluntary. There was no pressure, no forcing of people to sell private property for the common purse. They did it because they wanted to. There was caring for one another pastorally, worshipping together, both in the formal context of going up to the temple. These believers were Jews, and they still observed the traditional Jewish worship at that time. And also worshipping more informally in each other's homes. They were eating together, praising God together, welcoming new believers together into the community. These elements of the common life are incredibly helpful and practical for us to have as a model for us to have as benchmarks. But beyond these elements, what else can we learn from this community of the early church? 
And just to say, many of us, I know, participate in a wide range of Christian activities. You might go to another Bible study outside of St. Michael's, or you might have a prayer group, or you might be involved in some kind of missional outreach. And all of that is part of the wider Christian community. But what we're talking about this evening, and what this passage shows, is the community of the church. The body of believers in which you receive biblical teaching where you worship and fellowship, where you give and serve, where there is mutual care and responsibility, where you look out for other people and they look out for you. So in other words, for most of us, we're talking about St. Michael's. What attitudes of heart and mind can we learn from this picture of the early church to apply to our life here at St. Michael's? I'm going to suggest three. And the first is this. We need to get our heads around the fact that only God can create and grow community. Only God can create and grow community. Let's remember the context of what was happening. This account at the end of chapter 2 comes at the end of the chapter which tells of the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The Spirit of the Lord came down and in one day a group that numbered 120 had 3,000 new members in one day. Obviously, that initial explosion from 120 to 3,000 plus was a specific intervention in history from God. The Spirit came down. Peter and the apostles found themselves able to understand and to articulate gospel truth in a way they'd never been able to do before. People were convicted in heart and mind, people believed, people were baptized, and people were added to their number. The magnitude of power that caused this explosion to happen wasn't human agency. It was the work of the Spirit, plain and simple. Let's cast our minds back to 2010. Do you remember the big society? key element in Conservative Party General Election Manifesto that became a key initiative of the coalition government. You remember? The big society, the idea was to give local communities more power, to encourage people to be active volunteers in their local communities. And the initiative struggled to gain traction and eventually disappeared from the public agenda. I'm not going to be cynical about it. Indeed, I can't, because I know people involved who work very hard on it and at great personal cost. But ironically, an initiative that was meant to transfer power from central to local government died because there was a general lack of power all round. Not enough funds, not enough human resources, not enough inspiration, not enough imagination. Local communities who were told, go and be empowered, take charge of your local projects, found they couldn't achieve anything of substance because there just wasn't enough output at source. They were not well supported enough. Yes, the idea of community resonates with all of us. We all long for community. But as the big society showed, and it's just one example, All our good intentions, all our clever ideas are simply not enough to create and grow community. And there's a huge buzz in our culture, you know, and it's even become a pressure, I don't know whether you feel it, to create community everywhere we go. 
We are encouraged to create community in our workplaces by setting up this support group and that support group. We are urged to create community in our neighborhoods by shopping at the local co-op. We are sold the promise of community in our clubs, in our gyms. And good and helpful and well-meaning as these things might be, as Christians, we need to be very clear that the only community with eternal value is the one that God is growing. Do I believe this? Do I believe that God is the only person who can create and grow community? And if I do believe that, how does that affect the way I spend my time? All our human, human attempts at community can only go so far in addressing human needs. And some of them, let's be honest, are not about community at all, but are straight-up exercises in self-improvement. And as Charles said in his Fear of God sermon, the gospel is not a matter of self-improvement. It's a matter of salvation. It's not a matter of what we can do. It's a matter of what God is doing and whether we want to join in. The American philosopher, theologian Dallas Willard looks at this passage in Acts and he says, this is a picture of the kingdom of God. And he says this, let's not get complicated about what the kingdom of God means. The kingdom of God is simply what God is doing. The kingdom is a reign of God in words and action. What you see in this passage is the hope of all human beings to find a community in which they can live safely and well, where they can live meaningfully with full relationships to other people. That is what the kingdom of God makes possible. The kingdom of God makes it possible for individuals to come together in community where they are known, loved, accepted, where there is work for them to do, significance in their lives, and an unending, open future in the kingdom of God. The Trinity, the community of the Godhead, comes into its fullness in human life, in human community. It's only under the rule of God that human communities work. It's only under the rule of God that human communities work. Only God can create and grow community. If that is the case, if it's all God's work, what is our part in this community? I think it's this, and it's my second point. We need to decide if we're going to join in. We need to decide if we're going to be devoted. The level of devotion we see in these early believers, this intense commitment of time, of concentration, of effort, would be impressive enough within a family, a group of people with natural flesh and blood ties. But these people in the church were not flesh and blood family. They didn't even choose to come together. And there's no way we could expect them to have been like-minded. The beginning of chapter 2 tells us these people were Jews from every nation under heaven. They had come to Jerusalem from all across the Roman Empire. I had kind of made the assumption that after they were converted, they all went home. But some very reliable commentators, John Stott and Tim Keller included, seem to think that a large number of these converts stayed in Jerusalem after the Pentecost event. So we're talking about hundreds, if not thousands, of believers from very different cultures, speaking different languages, and we're talking about, and this is what I find incredible, people from all sectors of society, the patrician, 
the educated, the not so educated, the rich and the poor, men and women, all of them submitting to the authority of the apostles, described in the next chapter as ordinary unschooled men. That is what I find incredible. That this group of people in all their diversity of background, upbringing and experience could have been devoted to one another in this way, could submit to one another in this way, could take instruction from a group of ordinary unschooled men. Yes, the Spirit certainly did the work of transforming each individual life, but they still had to put in the effort to act upon the transformation, to, in Paul's words, take off the old self and put on the new self. If it were easy for the church to sustain this level of devotion, if it were easy for an educated Pharisee like Paul to acknowledge the authority of a fisherman like Peter, the letters of Paul wouldn't be so full of instructions about how to live together in peace and unity of the Spirit. So I'd suggest that apart from the initial decision we make to give our lives to Jesus, we have to make a daily decision to be devoted, to be devoted personally to God, but also devoted to the family of God. And if this sounds too much like hard work, listen to Dallas Willard again. And I really appreciate how clearly he puts it. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to discipline. Discipline prepares us to receive grace in an ever fuller measure. It was because these early believers were disciplined that they were able to be under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Do we see how the work of the Spirit dovetails with our effort? And then he says this, the church suffers when there are people who claim to be under the direction of the Holy Spirit, but are not disciplined. That line, that last line is so challenging in its plain speaking, isn't it? Do we claim to be under the direction of the Holy Spirit, but our lack of discipline betrays us? How is my church, how is St. Michael's suffering because of my lack of discipline? Or to put it more positively, how might St. Michael's benefit if I were more disciplined? If that resonates with you in any way, may I encourage you to ask that question in the presence of God and to listen to what the Spirit might be putting on your heart. And one thing that just came to mind to mention is this. Yes, we need to be disciplined in our service, in what we give out, but we also need to be disciplined in receiving, in discerning what we need to receive from the body of Christ, from our fellow brothers and sisters. We need to be disciplined in giving and in receiving. And giving and receiving are not mutually exclusive things. In God's way of doing things, it's often that you'll find that what you need to receive, you get when you dare to start to give. It's that lose your life to gain your life dynamic that Jesus talked about. But I found it useful If you just concentrate on how can I give, how can I give, it very easily becomes you doing, doing, doing. But actually, if you spend some time discerning what you need to receive, 
you often find that in your giving, what you needed to receive, you do receive. Does that make any sense? I'm always so moved when I hear or read the rallying call in Joshua chapter 24. God had given his people the promised land, and as they acknowledged that gift together, Joshua asks them to make a fresh commitment to throw away other gods and to serve the Lord only. And Joshua said to them, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. You may have been following Jesus for years. You may have been committed to St. Michael's for years. But do you need to hear that call again, that decision time? Choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. Let me end by saying this, and this is my final thing. Um, Be encouraged. Let's be encouraged. It would be very easy to read this account of the early church, such a beautifully harmonious community, such an idyllic picture, and become discouraged and dwell on our shortcomings. Yes, this is a model for us, but this was not a perfect church. We only need to flip over the page to chapter 5 to know that the remnant of human frailty and pride and selfishness remained, and things go wrong very quickly. But God stays faithful to his church, and it kept going, it kept growing. It would be easy to compare our rate of numerical growth, perhaps not with the 3,000 in one day, but perhaps to the daily increase recorded in verse 47, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. But when we remember that it's the Lord who does the adding, it frees us from having to achieve targets. Whether it's an overnight explosion or slowly one by one, it's the Lord who does the adding. So be encouraged. You know, we are growing. We, are, we, we really are. I'm so encouraged when I see new families come to the morning service. And they come because Juliet and her team are devoted. And the Lord moves. I'm encouraged that we run Alpha, whether the group is big or small. And that's because Guy and his team are devoted. And we're not just looking for growth in numbers. We're looking for growth in depth. I'm so encouraged when I see people who come to us on and off, who then something happens and they come in from the fringes and um, they're open to be served and they, in turn, begin to serve us. This happens among us, so be encouraged. It would be easy to compare the amount of time I give to St. Michael's to the time these early believers gave every day. But again, let me say how encouraged I am when I look around me and see the amount of time this evening service gives to supporting Children's Church on a Sunday morning, when I see you guys doing the heavy lifting, when we put on events, when I see you contributing to leading even the mission and outreach commitments that we have signed up to as a church, the Gate, the Pimlico Foundation, the Holiday Club at St. Barnabas Homerton. There are evening service people who serve in the PCC, and I know from the intensity of your contribution how much you love and care for this church, and you encourage me. Thank you. Every church goes through different seasons with particular needs and challenges, and there may be times when we will need to pull together even more than we do now. So let me encourage you again, in the privacy of your own time with the Lord, to ask, what do you want me 
to give to my church family? And what do you want me to receive from my church family in this season? And if you are in a home group, perhaps spend some time together to ask yourselves as a group, what can we collectively do? What can we collectively give to the St. Michael's family in this season? Let's pray for one another.